good to be with you all. Uh, I'm not normally in this position. Most of, my, um, most of my teaching is directed at individuals that are at the age 22 and under. And so uh, occasionally I have an opportunity to be in this pulpit uh, teaching an, an older age group and you all. And there are, certain, there are certain sanctifying graces that are expressed as a result of that. One of the, uh, one of the realities in teaching young people regularly is that there's certain challenges that come alongside of that. Namely, namely, they let you know pretty directly what they think about your preaching. And so if you're not interesting to them, they let you know. They'll just sit back, they'll lean back, maybe close their eyes. Uh, they don't make it hard to interpret whether or not they find it interesting. Adults are much more um, accommodating, much more gracious, much more merciful, and... Uh, one of, the, one of the results of, of speaking to young people regularly is that while they'll let you know what they think based on their body language, they're not quick to correct your terminology. Meaning if you use a word the wrong way or something like this, uh, they just assume you're, you're older. They just assume that you know what you're talking about and that, that you know more than them. Well, last time I was in Sunday school with you all, I taught Psalm 46, and I used a word that I've never been corrected on. I use the word infamous, and I use the word infamous to describe Martin Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And someone came up to me and said, what do you think infamous means? His name was Aaron Johnson, my... God uses him often in my life. What do you think infamous means? And I thought about it for a minute, and I said, I mean, I, I thought it just meant, like, very famous. <laughs> and he said, no, no. So for those of you wondering, based on the last time I taught, whether I have a beef with, with Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, I don't. I don't. I'm just ignorant of the use of the word infamous. In fact, and I, this wasn't like, this wasn't something I took lightly. I mean, some of you may have seen it. We were arguing in the atrium about this. I mean, I was like, dude, you're wrong. And I went home and I went straight. I started researching this thing. And uh, not only was I very wrong, like my error extended beyond just the use of that word. Like it's just, you Google the word infamous and it's famous for a bad reason. And, and, and then in the explanation of of that word infamous, uh, there, was, there was a comment that just said, yeah, it's, it's just like the word notorious, to which I said, notorious has a bad connotation? <laughs> I've used both of these words positively, so uh, it's good for me to be in this pulpit every once in a while, because you all can be a more sharpening voice in my life than the students who just say, ah, I didn't know infamous could be used positively, so... Uh, it was a good experience for me last time preaching Psalm 46. This morning, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8, which I may venture to say is a famous but not infamous psalm. We're told in the beginning of Psalm 8 that this is a psalm of David. David is the author. Let's read through this entire psalm. You can follow along in your Bibles. David writes this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 8, I love this psalm because it demonstrates God's majesty 
that is found, it's seen in unexpected places. As I read through this psalm, I think my attention and our attention should be drawn to just unexpected displays of God's glory. God's glory displayed and testified to in places that you and I wouldn't maybe naturally look and see God's glory and majesty. We're going to see that carry through. But before we do, I want us to acknowledge the central claim of this psalm. It's stated, there's, there's bookends around this psalm in verse 1 and in verse 8. David articulates the same truth um, and, and surrounding this psalm. Look at the beginning of verse 1. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then look down at verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He repeats the exact same expression. The central claim of this psalm stated in verses 1 and 8 is the majesty of God that is seen throughout the earth. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Before we dive into the heart of this psalm, I want to just make sure we rightly understand that central claim. When David says that the Lord's name is majestic, that word majesty, it's a term that accompanies royalty. When you hear the phrase, your majesty, we would, we would tend to think of a subordinate speaking to a king referring to him as your majesty. It's a term that accompanies royalty. When you think of the majesty of God, think of all of the splendor and glory that accompanies his kingly position over the earth. He is majestic, and he has all of the splendor and glory that accompanies a king. Now, David specifically says, how majestic is your name? He ties the majesty of God to the name of God. That's an interesting expression. It's, it's something that, uh, that is used throughout Scripture, but we don't often speak in this way. He speaks to the majesty of God's name. There is significance in a name because a name is, is not necessarily intended to point to the name itself, but to the person behind the name. When we think of names, we tend to not think of like the letters that make up the name or the name itself, but rather we think of the person behind the name, okay? So in this kind of environment, if I were to say the name Patrick, what comes to the mind of most of you in this room is the quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs, Patrick Mahomes, right? You think of not not any Patrick, not a hypothetical Patrick, but you think of a specific Patrick. If I were to say the name John, there may be more diversity across this room of specific Johns that you would think of. You think of the person behind the name. When I hear the name Alyssa, that is my wife's name. I don't think of all of the Alyssas I've met. I don't think of what the word Alyssa means. I certainly don't think of like the letters A-L-Y-S-S-A. I think of my wife. I think of the person that is behind the name. God's name points us to his reputation. It points us to the person behind the name. And so when he says there is majesty in God's name, he's pointing, again, to, to the person behind the name. He's pointing to the person of God that the name signifies. I don't think that we need to dive into a rabbit hole on like what name is specifically being mentioned here or anything along those lines. I think it's just who God is, the person behind the name. God is majestic. That's what he's saying. How majestic is your name is another way of saying you are majestic. Now, David specifically says how majestic is your name in all the earth. Your name is majestic in all the earth. Again, it's an interesting statement. It says the kingly splendor and glory of God is seen everywhere. It's seen everywhere. Now, this, this cannot mean that God's splendor and kingly glory is recognized everywhere. It's, it's not to say that all of the earth recognizes God as majestic because it's just not true especially at the time of writing, very few on earth recognize the majesty of the God of Israel. This can only mean that the, the evidence, 
The evidence of God's majesty is everywhere. It can be seen everywhere. And that's precisely what David actually says in the next line. Look again at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all earth, who have displayed, the issue is the display of his majesty, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. So the psalmist says, you, God, are majestic. You are kingly. You are glorious. You have all of the splendor that accompanies the ultimate royalty. So the rest of this psalm supports that declaration. His majesty is seen. It's evident. It is on display. Oh, Lord, how majestic is your name. The rest of the content of this psalm is meant to drive us to recognize that to be true and then to worship God because of it. Verses 1 and 8, the bookends around this psalm are proclamations of worship. This is worship directed at God. In the middle of this psalm is going to give specific reasons, specific displays that draw us to worship him. But I want us to dive into this text this morning recognizing that the goal is worship. The goal is worship, to see his majesty on display in all the earth and to praise him for it. The goal is worship. The application of this text, I want us to know this coming in. The primary application of this text is to worship God because of his majesty that is seen everywhere. The rest of the content of this psalm, this is in your handout. We're going to see this. Two displays of God's majesty that should draw us to worship. Two displays of God's majesty that should draw us to worship. And one of the things that I love about this psalm, as I said just a moment ago, is that um, there, are, there are many displays of God's majesty that we often talk about. These two are a bit unexpected. I don't know about you, but I don't find myself thinking often in the way that the psalmist articulates these displays of God's majesty. So I think this is a little bit corrective to us to make sure we think in these terms, to make sure we see the evidence that is before us as displays of God's majesty, because our tendency is often just to see things carrying out in the world and, and to not necessarily tie it to the divine. But David sees some certain things carrying out, and he's like, that is a display of God's majesty. So I think these are a bit unexpected, and it's one of the reasons that I love this psalm. Let's dive into the first display of God's majesty that should draw us to worship. The first is this. He uses the weak to bring himself glory. He uses the weak to bring himself glory. This is found in verse 2. The central declaration has been made, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. Then comes verse 2. From the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. In verse 2, David introduces an unexpected subject matter. He says, from the mouths of, of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength. Let's talk for just a minute about what David is referencing here. That term infant, when we think infant, we often think someone I mean, below 12 months. Um, the, the term in Hebrew is actually more broad than that. It can be translated little one. It can be translated child. It could refer to just an infant, but it's not, it's not limited to that necessarily. It just means young child. And that's how that term infant would have been thrown around. He's, he's referencing young children with that first expression. And the second expression, after infant, he refers to nursing babes. And surprisingly, that is also equally broad. In this, in this day, uh, children often nursed until four or five years old. So once again, young children are in view in this text, not necessarily exclusively of infants in the way that you and I would often use the term, but in how the, this mind would have conceived of what, what an infant was. In our minds, we should think young children, young children. David likely has in view young children who are, are something like three to five years old when he writes of these infants and nursing Babes. Now, he says something surprising about these young children. He says that God establishes his strength with these children. He establishes his strength 
with children. But how, how exactly does he do that? Well, look again at verse 1, or verse 2 rather. He says, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength. David says that God establishes his strength with their mouths. It's interesting. In other words, in other words whatever age these children are, it seems that they can communicate. It seems that they can communicate. They can talk. They can sing. They can say things. They can communicate. I think the action that David has in mind in verse 2 is the praise of God from young children. I think that's what David has in mind when he writes verse 2. He's thinking of the praise of God from young children. He's talking about the event when young children articulate biblical truth. He's talking about when when toddlers sing praise to God. Now, this is confirmed, I think, in Matthew chapter 21. I'm going to read to you. You're welcome to turn there in your own Bibles. I'm going to read to you from Matthew chapter 21 in verses 15 and 16, where Jesus directly quotes from this psalm. Matthew 21, verses 15 and 16. We read this. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they, the chief priests and scribes, became indignant and said to him, said to him do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. In this scene, Jesus is doing his work in the temple, and the, the infirmed are coming to him for healing. And in the midst of all of this work of Jesus, there's some young children, and they're shouting things. Specifically, what these young children are shouting is, Hosanna to the Son of David, which is a, is a significant statement. In other words, what these young children are shouting is praise. Hosanna means praise. Praise to the son of David. That is to say, the long-awaited Messiah. Praise to the long-awaited Messiah. These children cry in the presence of Jesus. It's pr- profound truth that these young children are articulating. Probably more profound than these little ones even understand. The priests and the scribes, they bristle at this. They immediately go to Jesus, and interestingly, they don't so much attack what is being said as much as they attack who is saying it. Because they say, do, do, you, hear, do you hear what these children are saying? And, and Jesus says, yes, and, and his response is about the legitimacy of the source, not about the content of their proclamation. He defends the value of praise coming from the mouth of a child. When Jesus defends the praise of these children, he quotes directly from Psalm, chapter, from Psalm 8. When Jesus sees children praising him, his mind goes to Psalm 8. That helps us understand exactly what David is speaking of when he writes this psalm. So turn back to Psalm 8. I think Jesus' comments there help us understand exactly what David has in mind. From the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength. It's a fascinating statement. David says the effect of the praise of young children is that God's strength is established. His strength is established. I don't know about you, but that just, it feels like very large speak to me. Like it feels like almost overspeak for him to say, your strength is established when young children sing your praise. That word established, it's a word that means it's, it's, it's driven into the ground. It's, it's firmly, it's, it's as if there's a, there's a sign with a post and the post is being driven down into the ground so that the sign is, is firmly displayed. That's the term. It's, it's your strength is, is established. It's, it's firmly displayed. It's driven into the ground. 
God's majestic reputation of strength is further solidified and displayed by the praise of young children. Now, why, why, why does David make this comment? Or even on a deeper level, why does God do this? Why does God use the mouths of, of infants and nursing babes to establish his strength? Well, David continues in verse 2. He says that God does this because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. You establish your strength by the praise of young children to make your enemies cease. To cease, I don't, I don't think he's saying that God is killing his enemies at the mouths of young children, but rather he's, he's bringing them to a halt He's bringing them to a halt. God's enemies, those who are revengeful, they're going about their actions, but in this display of God's majesty, they just, they, they stop. They cease. They're brought to a halt. And this isn't uncommon. When we see impressive feats, it often makes us stop in our tracks. That's what David is referencing here. When God's enemies and evil men hear the praise of young children, it is an impressive display of God's strength. David says, you're stopping your enemies by the mouths of babes and nursing infants. It's an unexpected line. It's an unexpected line from David. The praise of children is a declaration in the face of God's enemies that puts his strength on full display. God is using truth from the mouths of young ones to make his enemies stop and wonder. It's as if God is spiking the ball against those who resist him. It's as if he's saying in the midst of those who are crying out against him, listen to the children. Listen to the children. So David describes a scene in which those who oppose God are stopped in their tracks because little children are singing and shouting praise to God. Now, there's some profound truths here, I think, regarding how we should be raising up our children. It's, it's worth noting simply from Psalm 8 that God is glorified when children articulate praise to him. The singing of truth, rehearsing of truth, even the shouting of truth, it brings glory to God. He is using it. Here's the thing. The, the children that David has in mind when he writes this are, are very young, based on the terminology he's using here. They're still nursing, but they're, they're old enough to communicate. They may, not, they may not even be old enough to fully understand what they are articulating. They're certainly not old enough to have responded in repentance before God. Some may say that the words of children don't matter, that God doesn't hear their praise if they are not regenerate, that we don't need to teach dead doctrine to those who don't appreciate its fullness or to those who are not followers of Jesus. And this psalm says no to all of that. God loves the praise of children. He is sending a message to his enemies. He's spiking the ball, declaring his strength at the mouths of helpless children. I think this, this psalm compels us to be making sure that we are teaching biblical truth within our homes, that our children are well-rehearsed in the gospel, that they're well-rehearsed in, in biblical truth. The children in Psalm 21, taught by their parents, apparently, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Hosanna to the son of David. They were articulating that cry. There's lots of things even within this church. I think our, our families should take advantage of that help our children to, to articulate biblical truth. Things like Sunday school that are happening right now or, or kids for truth. Singing. I mean, as I was preparing this this week, my mind kept going to, to like our Christmas concert when there's, when there's children right here that are singing biblical truth. Many of them not even as regenerate souls, but articulating biblical truth and, and thinking God is spiking the ball against his enemies when that's happening. It's a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing. Do you know why this is such a declaration from God about his strength? Because children are weak. 
Children are helpless and they're weak. And God uses the weak to declare his glory, to declare his majesty. He uses the weak. The greatness of God's power is demonstrated when he uses weak sources. The greatness of his power is demonstrated when he uses weak sources. And God does this in many ways. I think Psalm 8 is just an example of that and how he uses children to declare his majesty. But God does this in many ways. Let me draw your attention to one of them in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is speaking, and he refers to himself in, in very similar terminology. Paul references in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that God has given him some form of an infirmity that he's battling. He calls it a, a, a thorn in the flesh. And, and he asked God to take this thorn away from him. He's, he's frustrated by this. He says, to keep me from exalting in myself, I, I implored the Lord to remove this from me. Three times he asked God, take this away. God's response to Paul is fascinating. In verse 9, God's response says, my grace, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. God says, Paul, this weakness in you is something that I'm going to work through to demonstrate my power. The extent of God's power is demonstrated when he works through weak sources. God uses Paul in mighty ways in spite of his weaknesses. He doesn't like remove Paul's weaknesses so that God can use him. He works in spite of Paul's weaknesses to demonstrate the extent of his power. Because in working through a weak man, God's glory was thoroughly on display. That's, you could imagine an athlete who is on a team that is filled with players who who pale in comparison to him, and an athlete that perhaps led his team to victory in spite of his teammates. It's this kind of terminology that is in this psalm. The, the greatness of a specific athlete might be identified to the fact that he won not because of his teammates, but in spite of his teammates. And God, in much the same way, works through weak sources, in spite of weak sources, because it draws all of the glory to him. And so he proclaims his majesty through the mouths of the weak, infants, and nursing babes. This isn't just with children or with Paul. The same is true of you and I, of the church as a whole. Listen uh, to the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 25 through 29, describing the church. It's not an impressive list. Paul writes this, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. That terminology is so similar to what David is saying in Psalm 8. God is using the weak things to declare his glory so that none may boast, so that his majesty is fully on display. So this is, this is generally true in how God works with humanity, but in this psalm, our attention is specifically drawn to God's use of the praise of children to establish his strength and silence his enemies. David becomes aware of that, and he says, wow, what a God. How majestic is your name in all the earth. The evidence of your glory is everywhere, even on the mouths of children who praise you. That is the first display of God's majesty that should draw us to worship. Let's look at a second one. A second display 
of God's majesty that should draw us to worship. Number two, he has given the weak a position of glory. He has given the weak a position of glory. Now, the weak source that he references in this next section of the psalm is not the infants and nursing babes that he was mentioning in verse 2. He's still speaking of weak individuals, but he's going to change who that's directed at. Let's look through this and uh, wrap our minds around what exactly David is communicating in these verses. The starting point for this second display is that David looks to the heavens at the expanse and glory of God's creation. Psalm 8, verse 3. When I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. Let's stop there for just a moment. He looks to the heavens at the wide expanse and glory of God's creation. He specifically mentions the, the moon and the stars that are they're, they're just the work of God's fingers. He says, I, I look to the heavenly bodies and I think about the fact that that you ordained them. You created them. They're there because you put them there. Just a quick word on this. This is what David does here is an important exercise for us to observe the glories of the universe for what they are. Creation. Creation at the hands of the creator. We see the the same wonders, the moon, the stars, the creation all around us, we see the same wonders as unbelievers see. But we see them from an entirely different perspective. We see them as that which proclaims the glory of the Creator. David was no stranger to observing heavenly bodies. He grew up as a shepherd. He grew up watching the flocks by night. He would have spent countless hours staring at the stars. He would have appreciated the vastness of creation. And we should too. We should be in the habit of, of doing what David is describing here, considering the heavens as the work of God's fingers. The moon and the stars is that which he has ordained. But I think you could argue that we should be even more aware and more appreciative of this reality. The more science advances and the more that discoveries are made, the more amazed I am at, at how big our God is. Many of you have seen recent pictures of the, the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, these pictures have been released recently. It's a $10, million, $10 billion project that was launched last December. Uh, it's, a, it's a telescope that is in space and the, the first images that, the, that are, are being received now. If you haven't looked at these, I'd encourage you so look this up, the James Webb Space Telescope that is sending back images that are absolutely stunning, more clear than has ever been seen before, more depth, more detail, further into the universe than has ever been seen before, and it's absolutely stunning. Stars and planets and galaxies and nebulas, detail that has never been seen. If you haven't seen it, I'd encourage you to look it up because it's another example of how great our God is, of how big, powerful, majestic our God is. Now, that's certainly true, and there are actually many psalms that talk about this reality. We look to creation and say, what a creator. But that's not actually the emphasis of this psalm. That's there for just a moment in this verse. But then Psalm 8 takes an unexpected turn. The emphasis is not so much immediately on the bigness of God, but rather on the relative insignificance of man. He begins to speak of the the shrinking feeling that comes over him as he looks to the heavens. Look again. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, look at verse four. What is man? What is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him? When David looks to the heavens, there is this shrinking feeling that comes over him. And he says, who are we? That's his response as he looks at the stars. Who are we? What is man? It's a statement of insignificance. He feels small and weak and undeserving. Man is, man is weak. The perspective that come from looking to the heavens is accurate. Man is weak and insignificant. This is not errant thinking by David. This is accurate. Man is weak. Who are we? He mentions two things 
that God has done to mankind that are ultimately undeserved. First, he says, what is man that you would take thought of him? Like, like we're not even deserving of your thoughts. We are so small and so insignificant, so weak. As he observes the heavens, he thinks, how is God even thinking about us? But far more than just giving thought, he says another thing in verse 4. What is the Son of Man? That's just another designation for humanity. The Son of Man, not just that you think of Him, but that you care for Him. Who are we that we would be worthy of your care? God has cared for us. He has intervened. He has demonstrated His grace and revealed His character. So his first conclusion is that man is entirely undeserving of, of God's attention and care. That's the first conclusion that he draws. As he's looking to the heavens, he says, man is entirely undeserving of God's attention and care. And yet, not only has God given thought to man, not only has God cared for man, keep reading. Verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. So not only has God thought of man, not only has God cared for man, but what he says in verses 5 through 8 is that God has given man a glorious position among creation. He has given man a glorious position amidst creation. Now, David's going to list several aspects that are all kind of driving home at the same truth, but several aspects of man's privileged position. In, in verse 5, he says, first, you've made him a little lower than God. Right? I look at the stars and I'm saying, who are we that you would even think of us, let alone that you would even care for us, and yet you have made us a little, just a little lower than God. It's a surprising statement. Let's be clear on what David's articulating here. He's certainly not saying the man is a little less holy or a little less righteous. God is altogether separate and set apart in glory. He's speaking positionally. He's speaking positionally regarding the hierarchy within creation. In the hierarchy of creation, man has a primary position. Man has a primary position within the hierarchy of creation. We are not just a more advanced animal. We are an entirely different type of creation. God has given us a unique position amidst creation. David articulates it by saying, you've made him a little lower than God. Now, just a quick word here regarding translation. Some of your Bibles may say, he made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. The term that's being translated there, whether it's translated God or heavenly beings, the term is Elohim, and it, and it can be translated heavenly beings or, or angels. It's, it's rare to translate it that way. In fact, less than 1% of the usages of Elohim refer to angels or heavenly beings, um, but it is possible. What makes this text complicated is that the Greek translation of the Hebrew translated that term angels or heavenly beings in the Septuagint, and then the author of the book of Hebrews quotes that, he quotes the Septuagint when he references uh, Psalm chapter 8 in Hebrews chapter 2. And so uh, there's, there's a bit of complexity in how this is interpreted. There's a lot that could be said about that. Um, I don't think we have time to do it now. I think it's best to translate it as God in Psalm 2, but the message of the text does not change at all, regardless of how you translate that word. The point is this, we have a privileged position. That's the point. Humanity has been given a privileged position amidst creation. Now, what David is pointing to here is the fact that we are made in the image of God. That's what he's pointing to. The terminology that he's using here when he says, you've made him a little lower than God. You crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. 
All of that terminology is pointing us directly back to creation. In Genesis chapter 1, when God gave the creation mandate and made man in his image. I'm going to read that now because it's loaded with terminology that David is picking up on in Psalm 8. In Genesis chapter 1, after God creates man, he says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish and the sea, over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over all creeping things that creep upon the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. When God speaks those words, there is a trajectory in his intention for humanity that is established. God made man in his image. I think primarily what that means is that he made us with the capacity for a relationship with him. Nothing else in creation is that way. We're unique. We're not like the animals. We are made in the image of God. And because we are in God's image, we are in a privileged position (coughs) over the rest of creation. Because we're made in God's image, we are in a privileged position over the rest of creation. That may feel like an overstatement, but the way that David explains man's position makes this clear. Look at the other aspects of man's privileged position amongst creation. In the second half of verse 5, he says, you have crowned him, that is humanity, with glory and majesty. These These are significant words. A crown is is a recognition of of primacy, glory, and majesty. These are are words that describe God. He just said, how majestic is your name in all the earth? And then here he says, you've crowned man with majesty. He's acknowledged the glory and the splendor of God, and yet here he says, you've crowned man with glory. These are words that describe God. Majesty is central to this psalm. How majestic is your name? Think about what David is saying here. The majestic one has crowned us with majesty. It's a significant statement. We're made a little lower than God. We are creatures made in the image of God. We are crowned with glory and majesty. Do you see the privileged position emphasis that David is drawing out? The third description. He says in verse 6, you make him to rule over the work of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. Once again, God is the ruler of all. He's the majestic one. He's the glorious one. He's the ruler. And yet, he has crowned us with glory. He's crowned us with majesty. And he's made us to rule in our privileged position. As creatures that are made in his image, he has tasked mankind to rule over the things that he has made. Once again, this points back to Genesis 1, right after God made man in his image and said, I want you to rule over all the earth. He says this in Genesis 1.28, he gives more detail. He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. David then zooms out even further. In verse 6, last line of verse 6, he says, you've put all things under his feet. You've put all things under his feet. That's a statement of authority. Man was made to rule like kings over the earth. This doesn't mean that everything worships humanity or something like this. It means that man has authority over the earth to carry out God's will. God has designated his authority to man to carry out his will on the earth. He has given him authority. It's like imagine a a parent that leaves the home for an hour and they take the oldest, you know, high school or something, they take the oldest child and they say, make sure that this house does not turn into a wreck. And then that parent looks to the other children and says, listen to your big brother. And the parent leaves, 
The parent has designated authority to the oldest child to carry out their will in their absence. That's not to say that God is absent or anything like this, but simply to say that God has designated ruling authority to humanity to subdue the earth. He has made man in his image to carry out his will on earth. God has given man authority, a privileged position to rule over and to oversee his creation. What does that look like? I think it looks like bringing things to order, using the resources of this earth, development. It's interesting. I think the creation mandate that God gives to fill the earth and to subdue it on one level is carried out even by unbelievers. The bringing to order, the the using of resources, the development of the earth apart from humanity Creation itself actually becomes very chaotic. Look at a home that isn't maintained by human hands. It becomes overrun. It becomes a mess. But as man subdues the earth and uses the resources that God has given, he is fulfilling, in one sense, God's desire for creation. He's been given a privileged position. Now, there's more that needs to be said here. This subduing of the earth, this ruling over the earth is very real, and yet it's not fully realized yet. Our position and mandate to subdue the earth still stands. The privileged position still stands, but it has not yet come to its full realization. It will only be realized fully one day through Christ. Because of sin, We cannot carry out this mandate to its fullest intention, to its fullest purpose. We are in the image of God, but not currently ruling the earth in the way that he ultimately intends. Hebrews 2 quotes Psalm 8, and it says that this is why Christ took on flesh. He's quoting this text. He says this is why he was made a little lower than the angels, because as a man all things will be subjected to him. And one day, we will reign, we will rule, as we were originally designed, we will rule over the earth alongside of him. We will rule one day over the world with Christ in his kingdom. That will be the ultimate realization of this. And yet even now, man has authority over the earth and is called to responsibly carry out that authority by bringing structure and order and purpose to creation. This, this whole section, I, I just find very unexpected. I find myself thinking in new ways in light of Psalm 8. When we think of displays of God's majesty that should draw us to worship, the things he lists here are just not things that naturally come to my mind. If I were to say, what shows God's majesty? You probably wouldn't say, my majesty. If I were to say, what shows God's glory, you probably wouldn't say, my glory. But that is actually what David says in these verses. Isn't that funny? That's what David says in these verses. But he doesn't say it, let's be clear, he doesn't say it in a way that like puffs man up. It's said from a position of humility. Like David is saying this and he's, he's, he's super confused. He's confused, like you feel this funny tension in him as he's articulating this. He's like, we're we're so small, and yet we're given such a large position. We are so inglorious, and yet we have been made glorious. He's, He's like wrestling with this reality. He's looking to the heavens. Who are we that you would even think of us? And yet, you have given us this privileged position. We are so lowly. And yet God has made us majestic? We are creatures, and yet God has made us rulers? We have been crowned, and yet we have done nothing to earn it. It's because he chose to crown us. The the only, the only response to these realities is to be amazed at the God who gave us this undeserved position. Our position, it doesn't point to us. It testifies to his grace. 
Whatever glory he has given us in relation to the rest of creation, it points to his glory. Whatever majesty he has given us amidst creation points to his majesty. And so the psalmist returns, not to our glory, not to our majesty, not to our authority or impressiveness, but to God's. He is the one who has shown undeserving creatures his kindness. And so in verse 9, he says once again, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's wrap up our time with just a few points of application. There are two primary points of application that flow from this, and then there's just kind of some secondary implicational applications that, um, that I think are worth our attention as well. Uh, first, recognize these realities as displays of God's majesty. Again, one of the things I love about this psalm is that it draws our attention to unexpected displays of God's glory. Children praise his name. He's making an announcement of his strength in the face of his enemies. His majesty is on display. He's using the weak to bring him glory. His adversaries are stopped as his power is demonstrated in man's weakness. Undeserving humanity has a privileged position of ruling over the earth. It's a demonstration of the majesty of God who has graciously cared for man. We don't deserve it. It all points to him. We are tiny in the scheme of creation. We look at the stars and rightly think, who are we? But he has crowned us with glory and honor, made us to rule over the earth, and that displays the riches of his glory. We need to work. This is drawn from the fact that I see these as just unexpected displays of God's glory. We need to work to recognize these realities as displays of God's majesty, to see these displays in ways that we wouldn't normally perhaps see them. But a second primary point of application, and this is really at the heart of this psalm, is praise God for his majesty that is revealed in unexpected places. These two unexpected observations draw David to praise God, to say, how majestic is your name? That's the right response for us as well. Praise God for the fact that he uses the weak to bring himself glory, that he has given the weak a position of glory. Let's look just for a second at some secondary things that I think flow from some of the truths that are supported in this psalm. We need to be teaching children biblical truth. God is spiking the ball against his enemies when children sing his praise. If you have opportunity to do so, teach children biblical truth and let them proclaim it. Another implication that flows from this psalm that's secondary in nature but still important for us is that we need to maintain a high view of humanity that is made in the image of God. David speaks in this funny tension so highly of the privileged position that God has given man, not to boast, but to draw attention to his majesty. A high view of God results in a high view of what it means to be made in the image of God, to be image bearers who have been given the creation mandate to fill and subdue the earth. We need to look to the day when that will ultimately be fulfilled under the reign of Christ when we reign alongside of him. But even this day, we need to work to maintain a high view of humanity. We are not another one of the animals. We are not just a more advanced creature. We are uniquely and distinctly made in the image of God intended for relationship with him to carry out his will on this earth. So let's embrace those primary applications first and even think through some of those secondary applications that flow from these two displays of God's majesty that should draw us to worship. Let's pray. Father, we want to echo the words of the psalmist, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You are majestic and you display your majesties in places we may not even naturally think to look. At the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you display your majesty. In the position that you've given undeserving humanity, you display your majesty. We want to build our lives around the praise of your majestic name. Help us to be aware of these and help us to return that praise to you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.